This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Sarah Holland-Batt. Sarah is a poet and an aged care advocate. She joined me to discuss in detail the ongoing crisis in aged care and the many older Australians suffering and dying of COVID-19 due to outbreaks in aged care homes. I'm joined by uh, Dr. Sarah Holland-Batt, who is a poet, and she's also an advocate for older Australians and uh, understands and discusses the aged care sector in depth. As part of um, her own personal experience that we discussed on the program in 2020 with her father, and also she's certainly taken up so many really important policy points, and obviously the issue more broadly, and it is something that continues to be highly relevant to older Australians and will be relevant to all of us who are ageing as well. Um, So we should remember that we won't be in a position where we might have a choice as to whether we end up in an aged care home or not and whether we're able to live independently or not, depending on our life stage. So this is something that goes to the very heart of humanity and dignity as human beings. As anyone who would have been paying attention to the news would have seen, COVID-19 over the summer with the Omicron wave in Australia has certainly changed things and has made this virus more transmissible. So then when you're in these settings like aged care, where people live in close proximity to each other and are reliant on a highly casualised workforce, it means that infections, um, outbreaks of COVID-19 increase, and we have seen the dire effects of that over the last few months. So I welcome onto the program someone who I loved speaking with in 2020, who gave us real insight into the issue then, and I'm sure we'll do that today. Uh, So welcome to the show, Sarah Holland-Batt, and thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Amy. And also congratulations on your new book, uh, which is also out. (laughs) And I hope people can engage with your poetry as much as what we talk about today um, in their spare time as well. So, yeah, it's great to see great poetry being produced in Australia. It's something that we don't get to talk about often enough. Oh, thanks, Amy. I agree. Couldn't agree more. (laughs) Exactly. It's a topic for another day. So, Sarah, I know that this is something which I've certainly seen you tweeting about. I've seen others in the sector tweeting about. We've seen headlines and um, certainly aged care, quote unquote, bosses putting their two cents in about what's happening in the aged care sector, including even today, a headline on the age End lockdowns, treat COVID-19 like flu and gastro, aged care boss says. These are the the conversations and ways that COVID-19 is being framed in regard to population uh, infection spread. And as we know from the past, this virus affects those who are immunocompromised, uh, the elderly, people with a disability and a chronic illness, anyone who has an underlying health condition, even perfectly well and healthy people with no previous underlying conditions. And obviously those who are not able to be vaccinated if they have a medical contraindication or those who haven't yet been boosted with a third shot to make themselves up to date. So these are, you know, things that we already knew do disproportionately affect older Australians. And now we've seen this emerge and come to fruition once again uh, after our discussion about that big wave in Victoria in 2020, which saw so many people, um, older Australians, die 
who were living in aged care here in Victoria. Now we've seen this again over um, December, January, February, and it's still happening. I just wonder, first of all, what your take is, given that you have seen this sector in all its depth and complexity over a long period of time. You are no stranger to the policy debates, discussions and rhetoric around this sector And you certainly are not a stranger to seeing how aged care outbreaks have been occurring during this pandemic. So how do you respond to something like what we saw over summer that was entirely foreseeable and still is at this very moment? Well, look, I think the first thing to say, Amy, is that aged care was already in crisis prior to COVID, um, prior to the pandemic, the sector was in such a dire state that we we were having a Royal Commission into it. The Royal Commission uh, was called in 2018. It handed down its interim report in 2019, in October of 2019. So there was already the the most uh, prominent form of inquiry, national inquiry, that, that could be taking place, the most serious type of inquiry occurring into the failures of care in aged care before we were aware of of COVID-19, of the novel coronavirus. And, you know, the the interim report of the Royal Commission, again, which was handed down in October 2019, months before the start of the pandemic, revealed a sector that was poorly regulated, um, that was mostly profit-driven among private providers, certainly, um, and which routinely was subjecting older Australians in care to, to really significant failures, including chemical and physical restraint, that's people being put on unnecessary medications or being physically restrained uh, because there aren't aren't enough staff uh, to deal with their behaviours, medication mismanagement, malnutrition and dehydration. There's an estimated uh, approximately more than half of of older Australians in aged care were already malnourished prior to the pandemic, inadequate palliative and dementia care, uh, physical and sexual assaults, which were, you know, prevalent at a rate of approximately approximately uh, 50 sexual assaults per week occurring in residential aged care in Australia, which is quite an extraordinary statistic when you consider that there are only around 200,000 residents living in the sector at any given time. Uh, We're talking about a sector that was in crisis. And one of the main drivers of that crisis, if not the main driver of that crisis, was the chronic understaffing, the lack of training among staff and a de-skilling of the workforce, you know, a reliance on personal care workers who currently aren't required to hold any minimum qualification at all to undertake that work uh, in favour of, you know, more expensive but but highly trained residential nurses um, and a lack of staffing minimums, a, a difficulty in attracting and retaining staff due to really, really poor rates of pay. You know, an average in aged care worker, personal care worker is paid $23 an hour, which is less than you would earn at the cashier of a KFC. Um, and you've got to ask yourself, this is already demanding, stressful work. Why would someone want to enter that workforce? While it can be really, really rewarding when there's enough staff, you know, to give the type of care that you want, it can also be profoundly distressing and stressful if you're in an under understaffed facility with with no regulatory instruments to ensure safe levels of staffing. That is where we were before the pandemic. That is where we were in 2019. Um, And so I remember the Prime Minister saying at some point during those catastrophic outbreaks in Victoria in, in late 2020, that the crisis was unforeseeable 
this is a Prime Minister who called the Royal Commission, who had had that interim report, who'd had a year plus of inquiries and an interim report outlining all of these chronic and systemic failures in the sector well before the pandemic commenced. And so I think my, my view on what has unfolded in the last three years now of the pandemic is basically that it has been a you know a catastrophic failure of planning that is completely inexcusable given the quantity of information the government already had at hand. Never has the federal government had more information about the failures in the aged care sector and done less with it than the Morrison government has done over the last few years. And what we're seeing now is absolutely a product and fruit of lack of action. So I think, you know, my, my take on it is really that we're seeing a, a failure of leadership on a scale that, that is quite breathtaking and extraordinary, given what we're talking about are, are really the most vulnerable people in our society. They're our elders, they're our grandparents, they're people who are treasured to their family members, and we've let them down so terribly, and the federal government and the regulator have let them down so terribly that that's really where I land when you ask me, what am I seeing right now? I'm seeing the fruits of years of inaction with with no uh, no reason for an excuse for that inaction. No, there absolutely isn't an excuse. As you say, we've known about this in detail and the report and the recommendations have been sitting with government and we've seen investigative reporters like Anne Connolly from the ABC following this up. We did see ABC 730's Laura Tingle doing stories on this over summer as well. I do note that uh, one of the issues within aged care that you brought up there, as you said, is staffing levels and the fact that one kind of metric and, and statistic I saw is that over half of all aged care homes have unacceptable staffing levels compared with international benchmarks. Mm. But as you say, it's not just about the number of staff, although that is part of it, it's also the makeup of the staff and yeah. who they are and what qualifications they have. And I know that one major thing that really sticks out um, as not having been delivered and that really is needed is this idea of having a minimum number of registered nurses on site at an aged care home during the, the whole time that it operates, 24 hours a day. So I wonder, you know, where are we at in terms of these types of recommendations and areas that the Royal Commission did look into about staffing and particularly the qualifications of staff and uh, how many there should be at any one time at an aged care home, you know, do you think that we've seen any movement on that issue and would that start to address parts of the, the issue here? Right. So I'll take you through it because it, mm. it's quite interesting and it's um, it's it's interesting. The government's response is interesting in a number of ways in that they have not committed to the, uh, the optimal recommendations by the Royal Commission. They've committed halfway. Um, on many of those issues that you've uh, that you've mentioned, and they've also postponed the implementation of those based on. So the Royal Commission not only handed down uh, quite specific recommendations about the the minimum amount of staffing time that a resident should receive to receive dignified and safe care, and and the Royal Commission broke that staffing time down into care minutes, which could be delivered by a personal care worker, and that might be uh, relatively simple tasks, things like helping with a shower, helping with toileting, helping eating food, um, all, all of the 
small things, bringing someone a glass of water, um, that sort of stuff, but also nursing minutes. So minutes that should be delivered and can only be delivered by a residential nurse. And that might include uh, questions of delivering medication, pain medication, as we've seen in that terrible, uh, you know, horrific case in Jeddah Gardens where that poor woman jumped off a balcony after being denied her pain medication for three hours because there was just no nurse to deliver it. Certain things in aged care can only be delivered by nurses. And so that's why it's, it's of profound concern the way the government has responded. So I'll take you through what the Royal Commission recommended and how the government has responded on both of those issues. So the Royal Commission recommended that a residential nurse uh, should be required to be on site 24 hours a day. The federal government has responded with that, responded to that by saying that they will only commit to a residential nurse being on site for 16 hours a day. And we might be talking about 160 residents and one nurse. There is no minimum number of nurses. We're talking about just one um, and so the federal government at the end of the Royal Commission is not even willing to institute a bare minimum of one residential nurse on site in an aged care facility 24 hours a day. And when you consider that people might need nursing care in the middle of the night when someone's not rostered on, people might need pain medication to be delivered. That's really alarming and completely unacceptable. And we've just seen a most vivid and terrible illustration of what can happen when there aren't enough nurses on a Jetta Gardens. A poor woman, um, you know, in her 70s with with a with a um, with a serious pain uh, problem not being given pain medication in time, being made to wait three and a half hours or thereabouts for her pain medicine and ended up jumping off a, a second floor balcony and, and injuring herself severely because she was, you know, out of her mind in pain. And, I mean, I don't know how many more cases like that we need to see to understand a basic principle that everyday Australians would understand in an instant, which is that, of course, you should have a nurse on site in an aged care home. Of course, these are people with, you know, with multiple medical conditions conditions that require nursing care, you know. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is the minimum staffing minutes. And so the Royal Commission recommended a minimum of 200 minutes per resident per day, with 40 minutes of that to be delivered by an RN. And that was supposed to come into force uh, in July of this year. The government has postponed that first hurdle until October of next year. So it's given itself more than an extra year before implementing even the smallest, lowest bar. The Royal Commission recommended that that standard should be increased to 215 minutes per resident per day in 2024, with 44 minutes delivered by an RN. Look, in my view, even that is probably not enough. When you think about the average person in aged care potentially having dementia, potentially having mobility issues, you know, the amount of time that it might take to, to shower someone, to, to help them with breakfast, to get them to the bathroom multiple times a day, especially if they need a hoist or other assistance. Um, you know, it, we're not talking about much here and the government has just flatly uh, refused to implement that second step of the staffing minimum. So not only has it not agreed to implement a nurse 24 hours a day, but it's also not agreeing to implement uh, the 215 minutes, which, by the way, according to international standards, that 215 minutes with 44 minutes delivered by an RN will only bring the standard up to a three out of five star standard. That is not an optimal standard. That is a 
basic care standard. And the federal government is not only not implementing it, but it's even postponing and de delaying uh, the, the small measures that it is implementing. Well, it is absolutely shocking to hear it so starkly and laid out bare by you just there. And I mean, it does raise the obvious question, uh, which is why does it need to be delayed? And also why does it need to be implemented in half measures? What has been the rationale or explanation for this kind of delaying and deferring of these recommendations that were made? Well, here's the thing that the federal government doesn't want to say, which is that there aren't enough workers it's known that there aren't enough workers. It has known that there are not going to be enough workers for many years. So Australia, in order to just maintain a basic minimum standard of care, of care according to projections of CEDA, we need to be recruiting 17,000 new workers into the aged care workforce every year for the next decade just to maintain minimum standards of care. Now, workers need to be incentivised to enter that workforce. It can be really challenging work. Uh, we know that, that aged care has a lot of difficulty attracting and retaining staff because the rates of pay are very low, uh, $23 an hour, like I said. You know, most people would just say, oh, well, I could just go down and work at KFC or at McDonald's, you know, and earn more than that at a penalty rate. Um, so, you know, you've got a workforce that is not trained well, is not valued well in terms of their pay, is casualised, and we've seen the effects of that over the pandemic with people working across multiple facilities. That's been how so many of the outbreaks have spread, is that it's a highly precarious and casualised workforce, and people are sometimes finish, finishing a shift at one home and then going straight on to do a shift at another home to make ends meet. So you have a workforce that is uh, not nearly currently with the numbers that could support these minimums. And the government has done absolutely nothing uh, to make it a more attractive workforce to enter. And I think that's the critical thing that I wish would be picked up a little bit more in this story. And the question that I keep asking is why hasn't the federal government done more to attract and recruit people into this aged care work, knowing what we're going to need to have? Um, I mean, CEDA has also projected that if we keep attracting workers at the current rate um, that we are, without a, without a vast increase in people entering aged care work, by 2030, there will be a deficit of 110,000 workers from what's required. There is a major gaping hole here, and the federal government has done absolutely nothing, put no measures into place, in fact has insulted the aged care workforce by offer their, offering them one-off paltry bonuses of a couple of hundred bucks to supposedly keep them, rather than putting in a submission to support a raise in, in pay. I mean, it's not rocket science. People want to be valued in the work that they do. They want to feel that they're working in a safe environment, that they're not overworked, that they're not stressed. And everything that we're hearing from every worker in aged care is that they're exhausted. They're sometimes being asked at the moment to do double or even triple shifts without going home because other staffers are off sick or are isolating, you know, or recovering from COVID. Um, this is a workforce that is absolutely at the end of its tether and the government has, is doing nothing to support those workers, to train them, um, is not instituting minimum qualification requirements like a Certificate 3 that would give people some basic knowledge and skills, 
is not providing support for dementia training, it's not providing support for palliative care training. Um, it's no mystery as to why there is a workforce shortage. It's really obvious. It's been obvious for a long time and it was canvassed in the Royal Commission as well. So the government knew about the workforce issues, has known about the workforce issues for more than a decade. We've been talking about the problems of the lack of workers. So this is what the government doesn't want to say about why it's not instituting those staffing minimums sooner. It's done nothing to support and recruit those staff that would be needed uh, to support the increase in numbers. That's the truth of it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that in uh, the last week or so, George Megalogenis looked at that sector in some detail as well and supports obviously what you're saying in terms of being able to attract new people into the sector as we see that that particular working group are becoming older and many are seeking to retire um, either early or um, just retire at the age that they would have retired. And he says that being the, the nation's largest employer, the healthcare and social assistance sector has added 120,000 jobs over the past two years, which is an increase of almost 7%. 70,000 of those positions have been taken up by men, but the breakdown of where those people actually went in the sector, in hospitals, medical and healthcare services and residential care, well, actually, it's very, very unequal. And so employment in hospitals went up 7%, uh, employment in medical and healthcare went up 11%, but in residential care, the total number of jobs shrank by 29,000 or almost 11% uh, before Omicron before, as you say, people needing to isolate because they have COVID or their family member has COVID um, and they work in aged care or residential care. So these are very stark statistics. Oh. We we then hear from the Prime Minister and the Minister responsible that there is no crisis. In fact, um, they won't even say the full word crisis. And we only got to hear the Prime Minister say, Chris, um, in his press conference, he stopped himself uh, and then tried to explain his Freudian slip. Um, but then we've now seen the government, after everyone has been calling this out and, and raising the alarm, as you've just been saying, um, that we've seen the Australian Defence Force called in at various levels to come and assist with some types of logistical staffing support. This is something which kind of shocks me, really, to think that our military is needed to be brought in for any crisis that isn't of a military-type nature. I know that they do have a whole range of skill sets, but it is quite ridiculous to think that that's how much we've let things slide with our eyes wide open, that we now get to a point where we're all calling for the ADF to be brought in. So I wanted your thoughts on that um, kind of stopgap solution that has been implemented and is still being implemented at the moment and, and what your kind of summation of it is. Yeah, look, I think um, it's it's being touted as though the cavalry's arrived and it's all, it's all going to be great now because we've sent in the ADF. The ADF can't provide nursing care. The ADF is providing logistical support, exactly what you said. So 1,700 personnel are being sent in. That's actually not very many people. They are, as the Prime Minister has said and the Health Minister said in their press conference, they're providing logistical support. So that's helped with things like gardening and cooking. 
that is not going to solve the issue of there not being enough staff uh, to look after an older person who needs help, who's in pain, who might not be feeling well, who's disoriented and needs someone to sit with them. I don't think it's appropriate for, you know, someone in an army uniform to be doing that. And indeed, they're not going to be doing that. So I think we need to be very clear about that this is only providing a small level of support to replace staff other than nursing staff, other than care worker staff. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that the sector itself, in in the form of one of its peak bodies, has indicated that uh, that this over this summer, an average of one hundred and forty thousand shifts per week in aged care are going unfilled. That's a quarter of all of the shifts in the sector. So 25% of shifts in residential aged care are going unfilled. Now, when you come back to what I, the situation I was talking about at the beginning of our chat, uh, where aged care was before, where we were before the pandemic, we were already in a situation where chronic understaffing was causing mass failures of care. So when you consider that where we are now, we have residents who are sick with a complex uh, virus that requires complex care, uh, where workers are being asked to wear PPE. And if they're observing infection control protocols, theoretically, they're changing all of that PPE as they move from room to room or as they help resident from resident. As anyone who's been in residential aged care home knows, there's absolutely no time for that. And it's no mystery as to why infections have spread like wildfire once they've gotten into a home. Because if you don't have enough staff and you don't have the time and you also don't have the training necessarily to, to, to use PPE effectively, but more, most importantly, not the manpower to support the timing that would be required, you're going to end up with spread. So back on the ADF, um, they are providing 1,700 workers who can do logistical support, that is not a solution to 140,000 shifts going unfilled weekly. That is a small step, and I'm sure providers are very thankful if they are missing people like um, cooks or if they're missing cleaners or if they're missing gardeners. I'm sure that will be helpful, but fundamentally it doesn't solve the main issue, which is a lack of caring staff. And, and you know, I think something that goes a little bit missed and that will probably come out, you know, a little bit later is just the number of potentially corollary preventable deaths that have occurred because of neglect. Um, you know, we're hearing we're hearing a lot about deaths that are occurring because of COVID infections, infections in aged care. But as anyone who's familiar with the existing issues would know, when you've already got malnutrition and dehydration in a significant proportion of this vulnerable population and you remove a quarter of the staff, um, you can expect that there will be other failures of care that are stemming from the fact that staff are so busy trying to deal with the COVID outbreaks that basic things are being missed. And we're seeing those those reports time and again, people not being given food, family members distressed because they ring an older relative and say, you know, at lunchtime and they haven't even had breakfast and they're hungry. You know, all of those things will be having a, a snowball effect um, that will probably take some time to unravel. But that's of grave concern too. So, yeah, look, the ADF, it's... Um, like you say, it, it shouldn't need to have happened. If the government had been had been serious about addressing the workforce issues, uh, when it received the interim report, it could have taken some steps to to address some of the some of the facts that were in there. There've been reports prior to that. The workforce issue is not some great mystery that we're learning about now. It's been well known. Um, I don't think the ADF would have been necessary if some of that recruitment and, and work had been done, and some of the training work had been done. 
and a wage increase to support and retain and reward staff uh, had been implemented. It's, it's all speculative now because all we've got is the record of failure. All we can see now is inaction. We can't actually see the steps the government has taken. So, yes, it's been necessary, but it's lamentable that it has. Yeah. And Sarah, I know that, as you say, it's been a very anxious time, not just for the residents and the staff, but also the families of residents who can't go in and fix it themselves. I know a lot of you know, patients in hospital rely on their families to come in and advocate on their behalf to doctors. And um, similarly, this is something which I know family members would try to do when something's going wrong on behalf of a family member. But clearly, when it's in such a crisis state, that means that you know, their ability to control things themselves and, and remedy situations is really lacking and they're very hamstrung. So this is something that I know many people are very upset about. Um, mm. One thing I, I really need to, to to discuss with you, and it's something that, you know, we've, we've prefaced at the start of the conversation and we've talked about um, in general, but to actually look at the, the figures at the moment, the fatalities in aged care, we've seen, and I know the figures are constantly changing every day because there are so many people dying and being infected with COVID at the moment. So apologies to those, this isn't going to be today's data, but in terms of the past week or so, there've been 1,029 cases in aged care and another 111 deaths in the past week. I'm sure it's probably more now, but roughly that. Um, and as you said, we've got 200,000 residents overall. So 1,000 new cases in a week is a lot. Um, mm. And we've seen this happening over the last few months. The case fatality rate is 10% in aged care compared to 0.15% for the general population another really stark figure. So I wanted to ask and discuss this issue that the government brings up and the argument that they bring up, which I find deeply disturbing, which is to discuss aged care residents and those who are dying in terms of them already being palliative, mm. which is not a thing that exists. Oh. And I wanted to, um, to highlight some reporting that had been done by Oliver Gordon for the ABC, where essentially he was looking at the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt's comments, where he claimed around 60% of people dying from COVID-19 in aged care homes were in palliative care or were palliative when they died. But Oliver has said and reported that aged care CEOs and the Victorian government, including Health Minister Martin Foley, said that they don't share that data with the Commonwealth. And quote from Minister Foley, the Victorian Department of Health is not familiar with this data, which appears to be anecdotal in nature. So could you share with us your thoughts on that and this, particularly on this rhetoric and framing of an inevitability that somehow these people were quote unquote palliative and were going to die anyway? It's absolutely disgusting. It's that's the first thing that has mm. to be said. It's it's a morally bankrupt kind of statement to make, and it and it is a shameful attempt to devalue the lives and last moments of these people who are dying prematurely. You know, they're dying of an illness that um, ideally they wouldn't have caught. Uh, you know, it's just. Honestly, it leaves me quite speechless. And I, I, I saw that press conference where Greg Hunt 
stressed the fact, and this is a quote, that they were in their absolute last days of their lives. That's what he said. Um, I would love to know how the federal health minister has such detailed data about hundreds of people across thousands of homes around the country that he is confident to say in a press conference that that 60 plus percent of that group were in the absolute last days of their lives. It's it's rubbish. It's an unsupported statistic. The states are questioning it. Even providers are questioning it. Where is he getting this data from? And it, it's it's worth saying as well, palliative care can last for years. So Hunt should know this. Hunt should know that palliative care is quite a capacious term. The average person on the street might hear it and think, oh, that person is dying. And they might think that it means end of life care. It doesn't mean that. End of life care and palliative care are quite different. Palliative care is the the management of a life limiting illness. And that might be something like cancer. It might be something like dementia, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, various life-limiting illnesses. And palliative care is all about giving the best quality of life to that person as they live with that illness until they pass away. That's what palliative care means. It is not end-of-life care, which is in the final days, you know, hours of someone's life, uh, where perhaps there's a higher degree of medical intervention and management. Um, Palliative care is a really broad and spongy term, and Greg Hunt knows that when he's saying it, and he also knows that the average person who's hearing it hears something quite different, and hears the idea exactly like he said, that, that these people are on the absolute last day of their lives anyway, and the implication is, well, we shouldn't particularly care about the fact that they're then dying a little bit sooner of COVID because these people are somehow existing already in some weird limbo threshold between life and death. Now, I doubt that Greg Hunt would be speaking that way if he was speaking about one of his parents or someone that he loved and knew and care about. And so he shouldn't be speaking that way about other people's grandparents and parents as well. It's it's just uh, some of the most disgusting rhetoric. And I must say, he's not the first one to use it. So the Prime Minister in 2020, Scott Morrison, referred to aged care residents in general as pre-palliative, which is just an even worse term. It's absolute nonsense. It just suggests that you go into aged care to die. Whereas the average person who lives in residential aged care lives there for around 2.61 years. That's the statistic. People go in there ideally to enjoy. It should be. This is not how it is for most residents, but they should go in there to enjoy a good quality of life for, for you know, on average, several years. And so to suggest these people are pre-palliative or that people who are dying of COVID in aged care are palliating in the last days of their lives and the unspoken part is, and therefore less valuable than a young person or, a, you know, a person in the prime of their life, so-called, is is just absolutely disgraceful. It's it's one of the worst things that, that I've ever heard an Australian politician say. I just think uh, those words will come to haunt Morrison and Hunt over the years, as as the magnitude of the of what they mean settles in, I, I just honestly, it's it's totally sickening. And it's something which I think is also not being pushed back on enough because we're not hearing about the stories of individuals who have been in this situation in aged care and the, their families. And although we did see a really wonderful article by Rick Morton in the Saturday paper. Mm-hmm 
detailing one of those stories um, over the weekend, so I do recommend checking that out. But we do need to see more reporting and, and talking about these people as human beings with lives and histories and stories to tell and who were not palliative, as we've said. There are numerous other related issues. Obviously, the vaccine rollout and the fact that we knew very early on from the data that we were going to need three vaccines to be robustly protected as much as possible against hospitalisation and death from Omicron. So this was something we knew, particularly before uh, we opened up, quote unquote, and had our really wonderful supposed summer uh, where everyone got COVID-19 apparently. So this is something which was concerning and certainly was concerning not just for the aged care workforce, but for those particular elderly and older Australians who only had two doses of the vaccine at that point and therefore didn't have that full protection that we would expect. I know that this has been raised in the COVID committee in the mm. Senate and talked to Richard Colbeck, the minister responsible, one of the ministers responsible around vaccination and the, the aged care crisis in general. But I just wondered if you could share with us do we even know the extent of the protection that elderly and older Australian aged care residents have now um, in relation to vaccines? And is this something that has actually is being addressed? Uh, are we actually ramping up the vaccination of uh, older Australians who do not yet have a third dose? Well, I think you've raised a lot of really important questions there. And I think the first one is, why did we open up before all of Australia's aged care residents were not given the opportunity to have a booster? And I think... Mm. That is the most important question, a question that I'm yet to see an answer to. I think the answer is um, that there was logistical disorganisation, that once again the government failed to prioritise. We're, we're not talking about millions of people, Amy. We're talking about 200,000 people. That's the entire cohort that needed to be given a booster. It's, it's frankly quite inconceivable that, that that was not done before we opened all the borders and, and let the virus circulate. I understand that we can't stay locked down forever and no one wants that, um, but I think it's, it's really profoundly concerning that the government had seen what had happened in the Victorian outbreaks, um, was slow to implement the first vaccination round. That was a totally haphazard disaster, just getting aged care residents their two shots, um, and, and yet has repeated it again by opening up um, by not... They, they haven't actually reported. So just back on that palliative care statistic that Greg Hunt was touting about over 60% of residents uh, allegedly being in the last day of their lives, somehow the health minister knows that statistic but can't tell us what proportion of the residents who have died of Omicron were boosted or not. I mean... How does he have access to the first piece of data but not to that? Mm. Um, the, the lack of data uh, around the booster rollout in aged care is really concerning. And we saw Colbeck being pressed about that question in the uh, COVID committee in the Senate, and he was unable to produce any data to support that either. He, he said that he was seeking that data, but that it hadn't been transmitted. But then when he was asked directly by Katie Gallagher whether he had actually 
sought the data, if, if there was an email to support the fact that he'd asked for it, um, he fudged around that question. Frankly, I think the government doesn't want to know uh, the proportion of residents who are dying of Omicron who haven't been boosted, because I suspect, based on the, the, bits, of, uh, the bits of data that have come out by states, so states have been releasing piecemeal bits of data about this, there has been a high proportion, particularly in New South Wales and in Queensland, of aged care residents who have passed away from COVID who haven't received their booster. At a time in January where there were 80,000 aged care residents who had not yet received their boosters, you know, we, we saw Richard Colbeck going off to the cricket. I think the, the booster, the question of what's happened with the boosters is urgent and the data is lacking. We do not have that data and the federal government doesn't seem keen to report it. Um, I just want to make a broader point about the, the overall picture in aged care and how hard it is. You've alluded a couple of times to how hard it is uh, to, get a, to get a really um, pinpoint sense of what's going on. One of the reasons for that is that the way the federal government is reporting the picture on aged care is only weekly. So the Department of Health is releasing a PDF 5pm every Friday, it goes live on their website, um, of, of a snapshot of what has happened in aged care over the week. They are not reporting numbers daily, so it is really, really hard. We, we're relying on states and a kind of addition method across states to work out what, what is going on. The federal government is doing its best to bury the overall picture um, of what's going on in aged care by dropping a PDF on its website at 5pm every Friday. I think if people were aware of that, they'd be outraged because we all know it's a crisis. The community is aware it's a crisis. And the way the government is responding to that and taking responsibility for that and reporting its actions is to dump a PDF at the deadest news time of the week. Oh, absolutely. And many of these things are being dumped on a Friday yep. afternoon at the moment. It's really um, a bit of a deluge for journalists <laughs> and their inboxes, but it has real consequences in terms of transparency and accountability and the public's attention and focus on this this very issue. So I wanted to finish our conversation, Sarah, just by talking about ministerial accountability and government accountability on this issue. There's clearly the COVID committee, which was set up by Labor and was or pushed for by Labor and Katie Gallagher, who is a senator, um, who chairs that committee. And uh, we know that Labor have been very much coming out and advocating on this issue. And we saw uh, Katie on ABC 7.30 when the Liberal Nationals would not appear to be put up to media scrutiny. So I wanted to ask as a whole about truth and accountability and, and the role that the upcoming election might play in pushing this issue forward and changing things. The Labor Party has said that they would support a submission for a wage increase for aged care workers. And so that's one thing which is um, they've certainly said and made uh, announcements on that they would really support and make their own submission if they were in government to support that at the Fair Work Commission. But what are your thoughts about how we keep our politicians who represent us accountable and how we might do that, not just through COVID committees, but, you know, through things like the upcoming March budget and the election? And, yeah, what are your thoughts in terms of what Labor has on offer as the alternative government? Well, look, I think if there's any 
time that, that, that an election could be a referendum on performance in aged care, it's now. That's the first thing to say. I mean, Scott Morrison started his prime ministership three weeks into his prime ministership was when he called the Royal Commission into aged care. And now he's finishing his first term and look at where the sector is. You know, you cannot get a more stark bookend of a prime ministerial term than that. Calling a Royal Commission, the sector is in every sense in a vastly worse state than it was when Morrison became Prime Minister and he staked his credibility in part as Prime Minister. That was one of his first acts. Now, he called that Royal Commission on the eve of an embarrassing Four Corners investigation that was about to air about aged care and he was under pressure um, for, for taking uh, a significant amount of money, $1.2 billion, out of the aged care budget over his time as Treasurer. So, you know, cynically you might say, well, that was an act of, uh, of political expediency to protect, uh, you know, to suggest that Morrison was taking action on aged care by calling the Royal Commission. Whatever it was, the fact is that was the start of his prime ministership and here we are. We're at a state where the workforce is in total crisis, where there are, you know, unconstrained outbreaks in homes, where providers and unions, you know, who historically do not get along, are banding, to banding together, begging for ADF assistance, it's pretty stark. And, um, I mean, I, I wish that there were more ministerial accountability because if any minister in the history of our politics has deserved the sack for incompetence, it's Richard Colbeck. I mean, we, we don't have time, you know, unfortunately, to get into probably the extent of his, his failures as an aged care minister. But, uh, you know, just to pick a few, not, not knowing the number of aged care deaths at the peak of the Victorian outbreaks when he was called to give evidence at the COVID committee, subsequently not knowing the number again in the Senate while he was aged care minister. He was given a bit of a demotion by Morrison to Minister for Aged Care Services, but still basically, uh, you know, is, is entrusted with significant proportion of the portfolio. And then, first of all, going to the Tokyo Olympics at a time when the aged care workforce uh, was not vaccinated 16 weeks after the federal government's deadline for them to be vaccinated. 60% of workers weren't vaccinated and Colbeck jetted off to the Tokyo Olympics. And then this year, of course, infamously going to the cricket or giving the COVID committee the excuse that he was actually busy dealing with the outbreaks. If You, you can't actually get a, a more um, blatant and an unvarnished and obvious example of ministerial incompetence and just total disinterest in his portfolio than, than Colbeck has shown over so many years. So I don't necessarily hold hope out, certainly from the Morrison government, for any accountability. Morrison is standing behind a minister who won't even admit that there's a crisis and backing him. So I think that I think the issues in aged care do reveal a really serious lack of transparency, like we've talked about, a really serious lack of accountability and responsibility. We've seen that rhetoric uh, from Morrison, where he said it was unforeseeable, various bits of spin to suggest that somehow all the federal government can do is react, that it can't be proactive, that it can't foresee things, that it can't put into place plans that might mitigate um, the spread. You know, all of that shirking of responsibility, I think, has become really obvious to the community in a way that perhaps it hasn't been with previous issues in aged care, because this is affecting most homes across the country and people who have loved ones in care are all feeling it 
pretty much equally and aware of it pretty much equally. So potentially it will play a role in the federal election. I'm glad to see Labor is committing to a wage increase. That's a really important step. But obviously there are, you know, there are 148 recommendations out of the Royal Commission. Um, I, I think... Uh, in terms of how I feel your question was, you know, what confidence do I have in Labor? Um, I think the more you know about aged care, the more you're aware that there have been bipartisan failures over the years, you know, that there have been failures on the, the LNP side, there have been failures on Labor's side on the issue of aged care. I am less interested in the party politics of it and more interested that whoever is in government is held to account and, and, and pushed by uh, the media. And I think the media could take a little more sharpened interest in aged care, certainly in the Royal Commission and its findings and recommendations and where the government's at on those, which is basically nowhere. I think that I'd like to see more push on holding whoever comes into power after the federal election to account to implement those recommendations. We've spent over $120 million on a Royal Commission. We've got 148 recommendations that could be implemented. Um, so my my interest is in seeing those through and seeing those implemented. Uh, and, and, you know, I and a secondary uh, and, and quite serious interest that I have in, in seeing someone more competent entrusted with aged care because looking at Richard Colbeck's performance in the Senate, it says it all about how seriously the Morrison government is taking aged care, keeping someone that incompetent in place for this amount of time. Uh, it, it really says it all, doesn't it? And it has real-world consequences, as we're seeing, and we see such huge amounts of infection and outbreaks occurring across Australia and uh, certainly disproportionately, as I said, over half based in New South Wales at the moment. So, yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, for being so comprehensive and so fierce in your advocacy in sharing with us the hard, cold facts, but also interpreting the situation for us and making it something that we can truly understand the consequences and effects of. I really appreciate your time. And I know advocacy like this does take a personal toll as well. So thank you for doing what you are doing. Oh, my pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is mine. I've just been chatting with Sarah Holland-Batt. She's a poet and an advocate for older Australians who live in aged care residencies, I should say, or homes, and it is their home. It's not a, necessarily a business or just a business. This is um, individuals who, as Sarah said, are living out their lives and trying to have a positive experience as we age, and it shouldn't be something that is um, inevitable that we have a, a terrible experience. So um, there's so much to be done on this uh, issue, as Sarah says. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.